0: It's been a big year for the arts, but with a federal government portfolio reshuffle, it appears that the arts has been left out in the cold. Well, in, in name at least, we'll talk to Esther and Atalitas in this final podcast for the year, about the National Association for the Visual Arts' response to the government's reassurance of business as usual. And then we'll cast the net a little wider and hear from others beyond the visual arts, actors and performers have mobilised to ensure the arts are not forgotten by Canberra. I'm Tim Stackpool, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks, of course, for downloading the podcast once again. And it would have been great to end the year on a lighter note, but I guess... It is important to document and hear from the arts industry following the government's move to include the arts with the portfolio that also oversees the building of roads and bridges. Let's get straight into it. Esther Anatolitis is the Executive Director of NAVA, the National Association for the Visual Arts, which leads the discussion and advocates the policies that strengthen Australia's contemporary art. She has appeared on the podcast before. Esther, welcome back and thanks for your time once again.
1: Wonderful to be with you.
0: Esther, I'm guessing this is not the type of end to 2019 that you had hoped for.
1: No, and um, you know, I think in the arts and for artists in particular, um, the kind of end or start to any year is one where you want to feel valued and appreciated. And I think when the art is visible to the national agenda, and it is valued and appreciated. And I think it's been fantastic having um, our Minister Paul Fletcher be really, really clear and saying, so it's just administrative change, it, you know, it, it doesn't affect funding, um, but it's not a question of the confidence that our Minister has. The issue is, you know, more broadly around, you know, from, from the Prime Minister's office down, how do we understand the structure and the, and the purpose of government when we don't have a department that's named the arts, what does that tell us about the government's cultural priorities, its understanding of, you know, the uh, multi-billion dollar industry that, that, that is the art and its understanding of artists. So not a great way to end the
0: year. I wonder if I might just ask you about how this information came to you on the day. There was not a whole lot of information floating around the place about how the portfolios may change. When that information started coming through to you, how did that unfold in your office?
1: Oh, look, you know, we, the National Association for the Visual Arts is not a government body. You know, we're a, we're a membership-based organisation. Um, artists are uh, uh, our members and our bosses and arts workers and arts organisations. So it's, it's not something that, um, you know, a general government restructure is not something that we would have expected to be notified about. However, we would have expected that the Department of Communications and the Arts would have been told. And we certainly would have expected that the secretary of the department also would have been told. So that's a huge problem that even within government... People weren't told, and as the outgoing secretary, who of course has been one of the five to lose his job, as Mike Modak said, uh, in what we've seen quoted as his email to his colleagues, uh, obviously it would have been great if the restructure had had the opportunity to have the expert input of... the the public service leaders who actually do the work. And so I think it was that shock of just an announcement um, that was um, a decision made by just a very small handful of people who didn't consult their ministerial colleagues, didn't let the secretaries of departments know, didn't get the best you know, range of advice about, well, what, what are the impacts of these kinds of restructures? What happens now for our colleagues who work in communications and the arts when they need to connect across government departments, get a brief up to the treasurer or to the prime minister? You know, next year's budget, there'll be no department with the name of the arts on it. So at that top level of decision-making, the arts won't be there, so I guess yeah. Our, our first response was, "One, is, sorry, what?" <laughs> you know, yeah, just a shock and, and disappointment, and then making some calls, and you know, the more calls and questions that we, we made, the more concerned we were.
0: Yeah, and given that you're far more connected than most of us who are listening to the podcast, do you have any idea why the government went about doing the change in the portfolio and the announcement that way?
1: oh look it's it's very confusing it is very confusing and I think it's um you know, it's a particular style of of governing that this prime minister and the former couple of prime ministers, you know, sort of, uh, you know, this, this frustrating revolving door of leadership we've had for a while. It seems like, you know, people become prime minister and think, quick, I better change everything or I might not be prime minister tomorrow. Instead of thinking about the long term, what does what does Australia need to prepare us for the future? Who are the, the, the practitioners who create that future? How do we make sure that we're supporting and championing them? So they're just and, you know, it, it's not just in the arts that we see this. There just isn't a responsible, long-term vision, which is really frustrating. We've got a minister like Fletcher who, you know, he worked with Senator Alston when Alston was arts minister and set up Zach's the visual arts craft strategy, and a whole bunch of other things uh, some time ago. Minister Fletcher was also parliamentary secretary to Malcolm Turnbull when he was communications minister. So he actually comes to the portfolio with, you know, a, a world of Of experience as compared to other recent arts ministers, you know, ready to engage. He's been fantastic getting in there with you know our broad range of sectors. Um, You know, we would just love to see that same long-term vision um, from from other aspects of the government because it's yeah, Mm. it's Mm. uh, really Mm. concerning.
0: And I want to ask you, Esther, professionally, you advocate. For months and, and years, actually, over the previous iteration of the Liberal government, and we spoke to you soon after this government was returned earlier in the year. But looking at the amount of advocacy that you've done, the strategies you put in place, and yet the government still goes about treating the arts in the way that it has with regard to this arts portfolio. Do you then have to think about Nava's strategy over the last few months and, and even longer about how you've touched the government, how you've tried to reach out to the government, and yet They've still behaved in this fashion. Is that a failing on the part of NAVA, or is it just the way this government behaves?
1: It really does feel like adapting to a new normal. And, you know, I'm used to in the past working with, you know, governments of of all parties where uh, I had some great conversations with colleagues. I've got a clear understanding of, you know, what the values are of the party and of this term of government and what they'd like to achieve. Some parties like to develop policies that are, you know, really strongly principles-based. Some like to look at industry strategies that are Going to, you know, if we shift this and, you know, pull and push this lever, it will have this kind of economic benefit. I think the challenge uh, that I'm feeling and that people you know, well beyond the arts are feeling is the kind of uh, the inconsistency, the, the, the lack of just even communicating what those values are. There are so many issues where at other times in history under previous uh, liberal national coalitions, we've had a, a pretty clear sense of what comes next. But this current period of just not just short-termism, But it's like the time is not being put into thinking about what's your strategy? What are the pitfalls? You know, if you do this, what are the dependencies? You know, what else will happen? And so when you're running an arts organization, a membership body, and we've got our a couple of resources that that we try to put together and and, and work from. So you try and work in a predictable and rational way so that you're understanding the, the policy agenda. But then random things like this happen, you think, okay, so so it's random, that's the agenda, and how does that affect a a great big industry? So I think, yeah, the shift in thinking for me is, what, what is this near normal, let's hope it doesn't belong and remain normal, and how... You know, now that we've just we've lost the departmental secretary, with a great deal of experience. How will we make sure that we in the sector are, are supporting our colleagues in public service to be making the arguments and the cases that that they need to? Mm,
0: Esther, throughout this chat, I think we're going to be asking you questions that. You're never really going to have the answer to. But with regard to how the government has formulated the new portfolio and the word arts is not even included in the title of the portfolio.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Do you think this was a deliberate comment or provocation by the government or or is there just ambivalence towards the arts?
1: Uh, look, I don't think it's possible to be ambivalent towards art, towards artists, towards artistic experiences, towards those Experiences that we have in our lives that invigorate us and move us and completely shift our perspective. You know, we couldn't go a day without that.
0: Um, um, but Esther, sorry to interrupt you, but in terms of the government response, though,
1: yeah. So, um, in, in answering a question about you know, are they ambivalent or is it a you know a, a move that is around trying to, to make a, a specific point of, of, of not valuing? I don't think so. So any human being um, ambivalence is possible towards artists and arts experiences that, you know, that, that transform our thinking and, and 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 invigorate us every single day. You can't be ambivalent towards arts and arts experiences. And so then it's a question of, are people so frightened about the practitioners in our culture who are taking the most thrilling creative risks? Are they resentful towards them? Are they uncomfortable about confident, open, experimental, free expression? Are they concerned about a diversity of voices, about the, the First Nations strength of culture that must and will eventually uh, have the voice to Parliament that is needed? Are they uncomfortable with the fact that artists ask questions through their work that politicians are, are, are too afraid to? So one of these options, be it fear, insecurity, concern, but not ambivalence, is what has driven this. And so I would have been fascinated to be a fly on the wall in the conversation between the Prime Minister and, from what I understand, was an extremely small handful of kids' front bench who, who made these decisions, because... The arts does need to be in with other departments and there are great conversations to be had. Arts and infrastructure is a really great obvious one. Uh, Arts and regional development, arts and communications... But the choice to render the arts invisible is no accident, and I'm just really worried that it's going to make the minister's job and the public service's job unnecessarily harder. When we think about what a strong economy is for, and everything else that the government says that it stands for, surely all of those things are about creating a world where we can be enriched by the most Valuable, important things that are created by each other. You know, this is what this is what life's about, and so but that just makes it even even more concerning and mystifying.
0: So if we now think about the strategy going forward and a little bit later on in the podcast, I'll be talking to members of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Oh, brilliant. Are you considering more of a collaboration with other groups such as that?
1: Oh, we work uh, We work closely with, um, with yeah, all the all the key national organisations. That's essential. Um, and yes, we, we, we couldn't work otherwise.
0: You said earlier in this interview that the Minister has indicated that it is business as usual. But how much confidence does that really give you?
1: Uh, Look, I think, um, you know, in the current government, I'm super glad to have uh, Paul Fletcher as Minister because he gets it and he genuinely cares and he's putting an expertise to it. I can completely understand the the worries of artists in the whole sector. I mean, on the day this was announced, my phone didn't stop ringing all day. (laughs) And and that that is no exaggeration. People in a real panic because unfortunately... The pattern that has been established by the minister's predecessors is not a good one. I mean, we had a situation just a few years ago where Senator Brandis and Julie Bishop launched the Australia Council's new strategic plan and they talked about how excellent it was and they spoke at length at that launch about specific aspects of it that they welcomed. And then, what was it, not even six months after that, uh, George Brandis announced uh, those debilitating. Cut to the Australia Council, uh, the shockwaves of which you know are still being felt by the whole sector because that completely derailed the Australia Council Strategic Plan. They had to change all of their major funding programs. And imagine just the work involved in that work that would have been the time of our Australia Council colleagues supporting artists and and doing other great things. And then Mr. Fifield returned some of that money after uh, Santa was moved along. But there was never the return of, of all of us, of all of the Australia Council's capacities. And the fact that, that that then happened, then of course, you know, there was an efficiency dividend that was then applied not just to the Australia Council but also to the National Culture Institutions. Those guys are some of them pulling out buckets when it rains, you know, like there are serious, serious problems there. We've got Aboriginal arts centres in, in huge challenges, of course, you know, the entire small to medium sector we've seen we've also seen many sector service organizations announce that they are closing. And all of this was precipitated by one action of a former minister which came without warning. And so again, you know, this notion that you can make such a significant change and think it doesn't have repercussions. You know, I think as as engaged and as expert and as the minister has been so far, which has been so welcomed, it's clear that the arts sector really needs to have the confidence of either an industry strategy or a shared or a policy that gives everyone the confidence that there is actually an overall plan from the federal Perspective that the industry and its needs are understood, that the sector and its artists and arts workers and organisations are, are respected and valued for so the enormous value that they bring to Australia. Not you know, beyond 117 billion. You know, we talk about philanthropy and private funding that is so so valued and important. The biggest philanthropists in Australia are artists who are investing in their own work, in seeing each other's work. This is the philanthropy in the, in the original sense of the meaning of that word, you know, it's that love for humanity and for each other and, and what we create. So you know, I think to have the government to understand that this is what enriches Australia would be incredibly important and that's going to involve making some clear public gestures about that just to really give that confidence.
0: Now, Esther, just to finish off, over the last few weeks, I've been having some quiet conversations with various art institutions who are somewhat reluctant to speak out against the government regarding the positioning of the arts within the current portfolio because they rely extensively on government grants in order to exist, pretty much. They're concerned that they would end up biting the hand that feeds them. Is there a way to advocate around that sort of feeling?
1: Yeah, and it's a really hard one. And I think when people aren't used to engaging in public advocacy, they often confuse it with lobbying as though they're sort of asking publicly for money or, you know, elbowing out their fellow organisations, whereas advocacy is just a constructive public conversation about what we value. And for those of us who are the heads of organisations who receive public money or who are the heads of non-profit organisations you know the, the constitution of a non-profit organisation says that it's there to contribute to the public good you know, it's uh, that's, that's why you can apply for and competitively receive taxpayers' funds because what you're doing is for the public good. And, you know, that necessitates having a really open civic conversation, you know, one in that public space where, where decisions are made, uh, where ideas are generated so that everyone is part of that conversation, but also for so politicians are hearing about the arts. I mean, you know, out down the hill, you know, back in the middle of 2019, we discovered in meeting with MPs back to back that they never hear anything about the arts. Nobody invites them to things in their electorate. No one comes to meet with them. So there's there's public and there's private advocacy. There's third-party advocacy. We encourage those influential high-profile people to write letters or meet with MPs. But there's also the everyday stuff of just remembering that MPs are also people in our community and that we're paying their salary. So they need to hear from us. You know, we've got so many organisations devote lots of money where they can afford it to development managers, you know, to be building those great relationships with business people to encourage their philanthropy. And yet we don't treat MPs as significant partners and stakeholders in, orga- in our organizations, you know, they need to part of our conversation as well. And if more and more of us were comfortable doing that, simply speaking from the heart about the value of what we do and the specifics of, of what we do, it would be a very different landscape. You know, the Prime Minister would say, hey, um, let's restructure, this is the new set Departments. we don't need the word arts in there, for him to then have... Fellow front bench is saying, "Oh, but you know, art's really important in my electorate. Oh, come on, you know, I I, I involved in this. I you know, I've I've spoken to this person. I went to an opening last week. You know, that's the that's the kind of background Australian conversations we all need to foster. So that when something serious happens, everyone is ready to go, and not just us who are stretched and under-resourced, but people who care about the art and who." not those political relationships, come and say, mate, you might sort this through because this doesn't feel like a very good idea
0: to me. Well, Esther, yes, I think they're the conversations that perhaps we should have been having a lot earlier on and the conversations that we should still have, of course, following your advice going forward. Esther, I do want to say thank you for speaking to us on the podcast once again. It's lovely to hear you actually so buoyant within the current situation because (laughs) the conversations that I've been having with so many people in the visual arts recently have been quite dismal to be honest uh, but I really th- appreciate your time on the podcast
1: uh, Tim thank you just just on the dismal I think what what energizes me is just the incredible work of art workers, organizations and artists who I get to meet every day and who certainly let Marva know when they feel that um, we're not on top of something that, that that we should be and that is uh you know is why we all do what we do yeah
0: yeah for sure esther thank you so much once again Thank you. That's Esther Anatletis, Executive Director with the National Association for the Visual Arts. But the arts portfolio, of course, extends beyond visual arts. It covers music, film, television, and actors, of course. And they've mobilised to make their voices heard and strengthen the approach being made by all the arts sectors. The Media, Entertainment, and Arts Alliance is the umbrella union which includes Actors Equity. And a number of members gathered on the front lawn of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney recently to discuss, strategise and make the case for greater arts recognition in government. I first spoke with actor Jonathan Biggins and indicated to him that it's hard enough to get the acting gigs to make a living from within the arts, but now making the arts within its own portfolio somewhat invisible can only make it tougher.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's also a broader question that I think a lot of the population don't realise when they're experiencing the arts that they're actually experiencing them. I mean, the arts runs everything from Real Housewives of Melbourne to the opera... Uh, And there's nothing, in there's no gaps, there's no demarcation points or barriers. It's all the same thing. Um, And nearly all of us engage in some way every day with that. And I think what governments need to do, and it's not really a question of money, this is not about funding, it's just about a question of recognition of the importance of that in the daily lives of people, in forging the national identity, promoting social cohesion, creativity, mental well-being enjoyment of life, everything. Um, and I think this notion that, you know, we all have to be quiet uh, is wrong. And I think the best way governments can promote the arts is just talk about it, put it on the national agenda, give it a responsibility of a cabinet portfolio or a ministerial portfolio. Yes, we still have a minister, but this is the thin edge of the wedge. Uh, so I think it's two stages to this campaign. One, an initial response, which is anger at the the um, consolidation of the ministry and then the second one is a much longer term thing in in trying to put the arts back into the national conversation uh, and remind everybody that we all do it, uh, we all enjoy it, we all benefit from it, um, so let's give it the importance and the status it deserves. Well the irony is that the major theatre companies, for example, return to the government 130% of the money they get from the government in funding through PAYG tax. So the government already is getting a 30% levy on the money it's spent. It gets its money back and then some. That's just from those companies. So I mean the economic argument against funding the arts doesn't hold water anyway. But I think we don't have we shouldn't necessarily concentrate on that. We've just got to to concentrate on the joy it brings people, on the benefits just to to life and to being a a citizen and um, say that we we don't want more money necessarily. We just want you to respect the fact that it's there and and engage in the ideas and, and don't denigrate it and hide it away.
0: That's actor Jonathan Biggins there. Now, I also spoke with performer Camilla Arkin about whether the joy of entertainment is enough to justify the arts or whether an economic return remains the priority.
3: There's always an economic argument to be made and you know, and people do have to pay their way and artists need to be paid, of course. And so, you know, it doesn't. Ha- it, it is an important aspect of it, but day-to-day, like... You know, just just right down to somebody, you know, a really broad vision of what arts are. It can be anything from, you know, going to the library and, and taking out a book and reading a piece of literature through to, you know, not necessarily going to the MCA but going to your local gallery or entering a local art competition. There's, it has such a broad... Watching a show on Netflix, you know, that took a bunch of artists to make the show that you're watching so the, the range of ways that it infiltrates our lives, thank goodness, is really broad and I, I don't know if, if enough of us are aware of that fact.
0: Camilla Arkin there. In a bit more of an official capacity now, Andrew Crowley is the director of the equity section of the MEAA and I asked him about the actors coming together to begin creating a unified voice for all the arts.
4: The point of, of any campaign uh, that we we'll look to, to launch and that we're planning, is that it's about a grassroots and, and, and the community, that the arts is important to everybody, not just the people who work in, in the arts. It's it's about it being fundamental and how fundamental it is to
0: all of our lives. Why do you think a industry which turns over pretty much close to $112 billion has found itself in this position within a government portfolio not even mentioned by name but also being part of a portfolio that is responsible for building uh, roads and and railway corridors.
4: I think it's just a bit of a common narrative with this particular government that they've shown a disdain for uh, other sections of the community. The arts is is another one. Uh, They are afraid of storytellers, they are trying to shut down whistleblowers and Uh, journalists um uh, uh, i i just don't think that they i I think they're scared of the power of of, of the arts and the artists is the arts a danger Uh, i i think uh it, it it could be um it's it's there to to challenge us uh and um it's always there to hold anybody to account including any government
0: That's Andrew Crowley there, the director of the equity section of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Finally now to Jonathan Mill. He's the vice president of Actors' Equity and his perspective on the campaign to raise awareness of the arts within the government is to include those who enjoy
5: the arts every day. Because it's really about ultimately reaching out to our audiences. Now there are millions and millions of people who come and see us. They go to the galleries, they go to the to theatre, they go to these places. It's engaging with them and putting pressure on them to say, if you want this stuff that you love, and we know you love it because you keep coming back to it, um, we sell more tickets than sport. We employ more people than mining. This is a really big, important industry which is being neglected by the government. And um, and so it's really up to audiences to start to say, look, we, do, we need this stuff. It's really important to us. We want it. So why aren't you supporting it? Why aren't you respecting them in the way that we want you to?
0: The MEAA is just one union that represents plenty of people who work in the arts. There's the Screen Producers Association as well to consider. There's the Writers Guild. There's NAVA, the National Association of visual artists there is a requirement to pull all of these associations together in a campaign such as this right
5: oh look absolutely working in with the other guilds because again they're not funded by government um they've they've got nothing to lose as well um the members obviously do if funding is cut but it's really it's really i think identifying which which organizations in the sector aren't dependent upon government funding and really allowing them then to be the voice. So it, it's certainly us, but we, we represent not just performers, musicians, uh, technicians, crew, front of house, you know, all of those people that work um, in the entertainment industry, in the arts industry. Um, and, of course, the Writers Guild is a really important part of the union structure in the industry so but it's really around that and i think that some of the producer associations like spa and the life, life performance australia in some ways they're going to be hamstrung as well even though they don't get direct funding they represent people who get funding so we'll be working with them but i think the industry is looking on certainly the unions um, and the guilds to be the voice of this campaign
0: Looking at what started this entire outcry amongst the arts community we were presented with a portfolio that didn't even mention the arts, but arts found itself within a portfolio that's also responsible for the building of roads, the construction of bridges nation building in terms of even railways is simply giving the
5: arts a more prominent position at the table a solution to this? Look, I think one of the big issues is it's the reduction of expertise so by diminishing the department, by moving it, um, by eliminating the name, by moving it from um, a standalone department to a super department, um, it just takes away the expertise that's in that area and it, it pushes the emphasis then back on who's going to make decisions about funding. Well, it's going to be the politicians and that's something that hasn't happened in this country for 50 years. We moved away from that model because it's fundamentally flawed. We don't want politicians of any stripe making decisions on what should be funded and which particular company and which artists and which galleries. That's an absolute nightmare. I think they're just setting us up for more of that. That Not only will they cut funding, but that they won't have the expertise, they won't have those peers, those artists who are currently doing the assessing on who should get funding, they'll just remove them. And the politicians will then give the money to they will to whoever they want, and that has the potential to divide the community, divide the arts community as we start to scrabble amongst ourselves about who can we, who the, who are they going to fund?
0: Jonathan Mill from Actors Equity there talking about leading a campaign to raise awareness of the arts within the corridors of the federal government, and Jonathan also brings us to the end of the podcast for this edition and for the year. Thanks so much for all your support in downloading each episode. Thanks also to our sponsor for the year, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. We really appreciate all your support. Inside the Gallery will return for another series in 2020. So until then, this is Tim Stackpool saying bye-bye for now.